0: which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Holy Father, we are so very, very thankful for Christ's incredible love, incomprehensible, yet in many ways understandable, and that you demonstrated your love for us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. But thank you that in this day and throughout all of eternity, we will know you better, more deeply, more profoundly. And thank you for the opportunity in this day to be regenerated by the Spirit, to be born from above. I pray for those listening within the sound of my voice here or on another campus or live streaming. It's not really certain of the second birth. Speak to them today as only you are able. And those who have been born again, which you said is necessary to enter your kingdom, You've called us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and so help us as we study this Scripture to become more like Christ, for our minds to be renewed, for our wills to be directed. Help me, my Father, in all that you've entrusted for me. Without you I can do nothing, but with you all things are possible. May Christ be exalted, I pray in his holy name. Amen. Take God's Word, would you, this morning and turn to the last book into the last chapter in the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 22. If this is your first Sunday here, we've been working our way through the Revelation, and I know I mentioned it last time because some of you are thinking, I must again be dreaming. Have we really come to the last chapter? We are, and we're getting close to being finished. All we have left is the book of Concordance and then the maps, and then we'll be done. Really, we have at least five or six more messages after today, and we have had a remarkable tour of the future that God has given us. And as you study the Revelation and the prophets who intersect with John, you cannot help but come to the conclusion that we are living in a remarkable time in human history. The world scene indicates that the conclusion of this age may be closer than many of us realize. Never before in the history of man, since the church was begun, has there been such a confluence of prophetic Scripture that is being fulfilled. Now, Christ can come at any time, and the remaining prophecy will be fulfilled after the rapture. But the fact that prophecy in our lifetime is being fulfilled is absolutely remarkable. Today, just north of Israel is Russia and the country of Syria. And the Scripture teaches that they will, in the end, go against the people of Israel. Iran, who in the 1970s was a faithful ally of Israel, now hates Israel and lives for her absolute total destruction and elimination. Here's a photo of three world leaders, the president of Turkey, who, by the way, Turkey was the first Muslim-majority country in 1949 to recognize the state of Israel. For a long time, they were allies of Israel. Now they hate Israel, like Iran. And here are three leaders from three countries, three countries that are prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that will actually go against the people of Israel. Now, 70 years ago, if you made such a suggestion, you'd almost be laughed at. And yet Israel has once again been brought into her land. She's been established as a nation in countries that were once allies are now enemies. In addition, there has been the formation of the United Nations, and there is an openness for world government like never before, paving the way for the one world government that the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter, speaks of. In addition, there is a movement across the world for a one-world church. The last three popes in Rome have brought together leaders from faiths from across the planet, pushing a ecumenical movement of sorts. The Bible teaches in Revelation 17 there will be a one-world religion, and the capital of the city that the capital city that the Antichrist will use is the city of Rome. And of course, beyond that, the Bible is very clear that after the church is removed, a seven year period of time that concerns Israel will unfold. And the fact that Israel is back in the land is absolutely amazing. If you read sermons from the 1860s, where pastors like myself, who believed the plain teaching of Scripture, preached on such things, they were literally laughed at. They were a minority. I've read some of those sermons. But the things they wrote about, they found in Scripture. In 1890, there were only 25,000 Jews living in Israel. Today, nearly 6.9 million Jews of the 12.5 million Jews on the planet. This is what God said would happen at the end of time, before the second coming. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel said in the 36th chapter. For I will take you from the nations gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And then he says in chapter 38 of that great book, after many days you will be summoned in the latter years. If you know your Bible, you know the phrase in the latter years is used by the Old Testament prophets to describe that period of time just before Messiah comes and rules on the earth. After many days you will be summoned in the latter years... You will come into the land that is restored from the sword whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. There's a spirit of anti-Semitism that is growing in the world, and it causes many Jews to want to leave their countries and to go to Israel. Others believe that because God's uh, throne is on the Temple Mount, and they are old covenant saints, so to speak, as Abraham was, but not in the truest sense because they are in unbelief. They have not received God's revelation. But they recognize that there are things that are to happen in the city of Jerusalem. And that's why thousands, millions of Jews have gone back to Israel. It's a miracle. No other nation. They were literally scattered through all the nations of the world in 70 A.D., and it was completed through the Bar Kokhba Rebellion in 135. And now if you go to Israel today, there's over 100 nations of Jews. God said, I will bring them from the four corners of the earth, from the north, from the south, from the remotest parts of the world, and indeed they have come. That's the first step. He gathers them physically before he will renew them spiritually. And so we're living in a day, too, which the Bible prophesies concerning apostasy. There's always been apostasy in the church, but there is coming apostasy like we've never seen before. It's called the apostasy. In the one great nation of the world, the United States, said for a hundred years... Has led in the preaching of the gospel. Apostasy has entered in like never before. I was reading this week of a woman pastor from a denomination who came to the Campus Crusade National Staff Training this past summer, now called Crew. And along with other regional leaders of the organization, she was legitimizing same sex attraction. Apostasy, it's entered into ministries. It's entered into seminaries. When I was asked to consider being a candidate to be the president of Dallas Seminary, I said, I can't in light of these things. If you're willing to change these things, I would be willing to change my mind. But apostasy is walking in the front door. And so you have churches and seminaries and leaders who are talking more about the social gospel and social justice and intersectionality than they are about the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back for his church. All kinds of things need to happen for him to come back in the second coming. But God is fulfilling prophecy for the second coming, which should alert you that the rapture is that much closer. Now, we're going to look at today, Revelation 22, just verses 6 through 9. Follow along. I hope you brought a Bible. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. Now remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, so don't let them distract you. When you come to verse 6 of chapter 22, you've started the final portion of the Revelation, what we call the epilogue. So it's the second bookend. The first was the prologue found in chapter 1 and the opening verses. Now we are coming to the epilogue. And we have here some final words spoken by three different individuals, an angel, the apostle John himself, and we will see the words of the Lord Jesus. And so here today in our passage, this exchange takes place between one of the seven angels who had one of the seven bowls of judgment. And as you read these verses, we're somewhat struck with the truth that all that the apostle John saw, each and every vision that he has given, and all that he records is written to produce a response in you and in me. And there are three responses that we find in these few verses. If you're using your note-taking outline, the first response is that we are to wait. When we think about Jesus coming back from heaven, we are to wait. Look, if you will, again in verse 1 of chapter, um, to, uh, verse 6 of chapter 22. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. Now, you read that, and you say, he said to me, and you say, who is the he? And you go back to chapter 22 in verse 1, where we were introduced to this particular angel. And again, it says, he said, and so you say, well, again, who is the he? And you have to go back to chapter 21 in verse 9. And there we read, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven Last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So that he here, this angel, is one of the seven angels who had one of the seven bowls of wrath. We were introduced to those seven angels in the shortest chapter in the Revelation, the 15th chapter, seven angels, each carrying a bowl of wrath. And we were introduced to this angel earlier. So, 22.6 goes back to 22.1, 22.1 goes back to 21.9, and 21.9 goes back to 17.1, where we first met this angel. Let me refresh your mind with it. We read almost identical wording, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Same angel, and so how appropriate. First, he shows John the devil's city, where the Antichrist will have his religious and economic capital. It's called Babylon or Rome. And he describes that city in those two chapters as a great harlot, as a woman, because people will give their love and affection to the Antichrist when they should give it to the Lord Jesus. Well, this same angel then gives him a tour of the holy city, where the redeemed live, and the redeemed are called the wife, the bride. in this city is also called by the same terms, and how appropriate. And so there's a lot of time that is spent in describing this eternal city. Why is that? Because since Christ emptied out righteous Sheol that happened at the ascension, from that moment on, every believer who died went to the new Jerusalem, to the Father's house. And so your loved ones who knew the Lord, who have gone home to be with Jesus, they're in the place that we've been studying all the way through chapter 21 where he gave us largely an external tour, and then the first five verses of chapter 22 where he gave us the inside tour. And how appropriate that he would spend so much time on it because that's where God's people are at for some 2,000 years. But we've already learned that's just the capital city of a new heaven and a new earth that God is going to make. You know, uh, a pastor was interviewed recently. His church burned to the ground, struck by lightning. And he said, no, we still have a church because the church is not this building, it's the people. And we'll go on, and he was correct. This building is not Community Bible Church building. It's the meeting place of Community Bible Church. The church is the people. And so in God's economy... The people are identified with his church if they know Jesus. In the same way, there are cities that are identified with the people who live in that city. And so some cities have a particular description because that's the way the people are in that city. Philadelphia, originally called the city of brotherly love, was known for its great hospitality and love and care for people. I'm not so much sure today, but still that was the original identification. Well, with this city... The bride, the church lives there, but the city itself is called the bride. So here in 22.6, when the verse opens, and he said to me, contextually, we know precisely who the he is. This is the same angel that we studied last week who gave the inside tour where we saw the throne room of God and we saw the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing down that throne room. And notice he said to me, these words are faithful and true. He wants John to realize that the things that have been prophesied that he will record are completely both faithful and true. It's not too good to be true. It's faithful and true. How so? He gives us an explanation why we can know these words are faithful and true. These words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. God's angel tells us that it was the Lord, the God, who inspired the, spirit of the spirits of the prophets, are the same, it's the same God, the same work of God that is giving us the book of Revelation. Listen to this verse. You might want to put it out on the margin next to verse 6 because it's really a parallel verse, 2 Peter 1.21, 2 Peter 1.21. Peter said it this way, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Uh, some translations say a matter of one's own origination. In other words, it did not have its origin, the Scripture, in the will of man. How so? For no prophecy was ever made as an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. If you pulled out a com- computer concordance, you would discover that some 3,800 times the Bible identifies itself as the Word of God. It will either say, God said, or thus says the Lord. Now, sometimes when a Christian is confronted, why do you believe the Bible to be the Word of God? And they'll quote a verse like 2 Timothy 3.16, for all Scripture is inspired by God. Well, the unbeliever would say, well, that's somewhat of a circular argument. But understand, if the Bible did not claim to be the Word of God, and it does, again, some 3,800 times, and we tried to make it out to be the Word of God, we would have a serious, serious problem. But Revelation 22.6 says, and this verse in 2 Peter 1 are two very important verses because it's reminding us that the Bible was not written by men independently of God. God worked in their spirits. So here in 2 Timothy 3.16 in the New American Standard, it says all Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, as the NIV 84, and they rarely get it literally, but literally it says all Scripture is God-breathed. Theos, god Newstoss: All scripture is the breath of God. The YLT translation says, "Every writing is God breathed." The ESV says, "All scripture is breathed out by God." The King James says, "All scripture is given by inspiration, inspiration, <sighs> the breath of God." And just as my voice is my breath coming up out of my diaphragm from my lungs up over my larynx, being uh, brought through my vocal cords and the words being articulated by my lips, my tongue, and my teeth. What you are hearing this morning is Carl's breath, the breath of Carl. Even so, the Scripture is the breath of God as much as if God had a voice box. That's what you are reading this morning. Inspiration, that it is God breathed, does not mean that God took something dead and breathed life into it. For that matter, it doesn't even mean that God breathed into the human authors of Scripture. But it does mean, as it's used in the New Testament, that God breathed the Bible out of himself through the spirits of the prophets, and they recorded it, they wrote it down. The truth is not that God breathed into the writers of the writings, but he breathed out of his mouth precisely what he wanted to be written. And so it doesn't say the writers are inspired, though they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. It said the scripture, the graphe, the final product, is what is God breathed. And because God is infallible, his word is infallible, and because God cannot err, His word cannot err. That's why Peter in his first epistle calls the word of God truth. He describes it as the pure, unadulterated word of God. The scripture is God-breathed since these men were moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Listen, without stutter or stammer or fear of any apology, the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, eternal word of God, period. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, and the word moved is a first century sailing term. When a sail is filled with wind, And so these men were filled. They were moved along by the breath of God as they wrote Scripture. So let's relate inspiration here to verse 6 in our text this morning. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. This angel is telling the apostle John that while he himself as an angel is not a prophet of God the message that he has delivered from the Father to Christ to himself to John is no less the infallible, inerrant Word of God. He's simply telling John that what he has written down, what he has been giving is as inspired as any Old Testament prophet of ages gone back. And I might say, not only will these prophecies be fulfilled as they were for the first coming, and how are the prophecies for the first coming fulfilled? Every single one of them, without exception, literally. When God says that Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, we go, I wonder, well, maybe Bethlehem is just a, a place where they grow bread and not a real city and you can allegorize. No, every single prophecy was literally fulfilled. And just as God moved through those men of old, he's moving through John, and he will literally fulfill again in our day, as we noted in the introduction this morning. We are seeing prophecy fulfilled in our day. It's absolutely amazing. Now, the apostle John had an experience, as we've already noted, that was somewhat unique. True, Paul received a vision. In fact, it was so real, he said, I'm not sure if I was physically there or if it was just a vision. But he wrote about what he saw in heaven, and basically he couldn't write anything. God said, "Uh, I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh so you'll never brag about the place. But John is given a revelation of heaven, and not just heaven. He's given a revelation of the whole prophetic span of issues. He takes basically the schematic for the end times that's given through the prophet Daniel, and he fills in all the fine details. Which is why in verse 8, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I'll read it in a moment. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So in that sense, he has an edge on the process of inspiration. Because not only is he inspired to write the text, but he is an eyewitness of the prophetic plan that has unfolded. God pulls back the curtain for John, and he allows him to hear and see the future, and in essence, he comes back from the future, and then he writes it down. And so the angel in saying this is faithful and true, he's basically saying, this is not too good to be true. And you know what they say about things that are too good to be true. This is not made of. And God sent his angel, notice verse 6, to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Now, the epilogue of this great book that begins here in verse 6 closes the book in the same way it started. Do you remember how the book started? Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So here we are at the end of the book, and like in the opening verse, we are told the purpose of this revelation, this unveiling, is to show God's people, His bondservants, what must take place. So this book was not written primarily to mystify. That's what people would have you to believe. It was written in order to explain, to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And by the way, if you are one of his bondservants this morning, then the Father has given permission to the Son through this angel who gave it to John, and we're reading it this morning, for you to know the future. Now, if you're not one of his bondservants, this will seem like a lot of hooey. How so? Because without a regenerated mind... You can't really understand Scripture. God gives you enough understanding so you can be saved. But if you refuse the salvation, then you're physically alive and you're spiritually dead. You're called a natural man. That's the way we come into this world. And the natural man or the unbeliever, Paul says, does not understand the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him and he cannot understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised or discerned. So he notes specifically here in verse 6 about the things that must soon take place. So what do we mean by soon? After all, this was written some 2,000 years ago, and it doesn't seem like it's happened yet. Seven times in the Revelation. I've noted every single time as we've worked through the book. God speaks about something soon or quick. And depending on your translation, it either says soon or quickly or shortly or suddenly. But understand in Greek... God uses time in two ways, not just the kind of time, but the time of time. And here he's describing really here um, the kind of time that once it starts, it's going to unfold very, very quickly. And we've already seen that as we studied the seal, the trumpet, and the bold judgments and how quick they went down. And the word soon is the word taxis. We get our word tachometer in English, and uh, it speaks of something that is fast. When we were teenagers in the 70s, we would put a tachometer up on the steering column of our car. I think it made us think it was going to go faster. It didn't, but you put it up there anyway to be cool. Well, the point is, is that once the rapture of the church takes place that is imminent, it could happen at any moment. And in that sense, it can be very soon... But once it begins to happen, it will all go very, very quickly. Understand, after Jesus ascended into heaven, he could have come back 10 minutes later, 10 hours later, 10 weeks later, 1,000 years later. Nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come and to catch up his church. Yet it's amazing that in these days... We are seeing prophecy fulfilled for the second coming because much must happen for the second coming to unfold. And of course, when you see that happening, you should be reminded that it is that much closer. Look, if the early church saw some of these things unfolding in their day, they would have been absolutely blown away. But now we live in a day where most Christians are just asleep. They're so entertained by the world, they have no idea what is really going on around them. And yet every generation is to be expectant because he could have come in the first century. He can come in this century. He can come at any moment. And so Paul tells us that we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath of God to come. So, don't miss what every Greek reader would have picked up in the first century that this is not simply a progression of events. When it happens, it will be very quick to show us the things which must soon or suddenly take place. And so, we learn here in verse six that this angel of God reveals to his bondservant, and he writes to us, his bondservants, of what is going to happen soon. And again, that is an encouragement in terms of the authenticity of this prophecy. It's faithful and true, but also it is a reminder, it's an encouragement to anticipate that he could come very, very soon. And so, by the way, let me say it parenthetically while we're here again. When you read the book of Revelation, there are many Christians today who are really kind of just dismissing that Jesus could come back anytime soon because they do not interpret Revelation beginning in chapter 4 through 18 as futuristic. And if you were not here for the opening message, I went through uh, four or five different ways people have interpreted the book of Revelation and the history of the church. The early church fathers all saw it as futuristic. The chapter 4 onward was something that had never, ever taken place. But today, through some of our Reformed brothers, they say, with the exception of chapter 19 in the second coming, all of Revelation is history. And so when they approach Revelation, they either allegorize it. And so by an allegorization, you you, you kind of spiritualize the text. You say, well, this represents this. Well, unless God says this does represent this, then you can write your own Bible and make the Bible mean whatever you want. Or there were people like Martin Luther who took the historical approach to the book of Revelation, and he said that it was not past the preterist view, all done before 70 A.D., but it was being fulfilled through the church age. And he thought, Luther, that the Antichrist, the pope, was literally the Antichrist and that he was living in the tribulation. Obviously, he was wrong. Look, as you read what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse at this time frame, and you read the detailed explanation that John gives, it's obvious that the events, the persons, the descriptions are so incredible that nothing in the history of the world could ever have fulfilled it. And so John wants to affirm here what the angel tells him, what I heard and saw is faithful and true, and Jesus will say it again. Uh, Look down in verse uh, 16 here. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. And so when we come to the end of the book, verses 18 and 19, notice what Jesus says. If anyone adds to them the words of the prophecy of this book, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book of this prophecy. God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Jesus is giving a warning. There is no book like Revelation. We're called to study it, to heed it, to obey it, but we're also warned that we're not to tamper with it. And we'll come to this and we'll spend a whole message just on those two verses. And again, if you're not sure about all the different approaches that began largely under Roman Catholicism and then some of the reformers who came out of Catholicism, get the Search the Scriptures app and listen to the very first message in the Revelation. So this is a revelation. The word means an unveiling. God took something that was hidden, and he's unveiled it for us. He's writing to us something that's not incomprehensible, but something that he wants us to grasp and to understand. So think about for a moment where we've been. Here's a prophetic chart that John has given us, but not John uniquely. Also, uh, the other prophets. Right now, we're in the church age. And so when you read the book of Revelation, he writes about the things that were past, and he describes the picture of Christ glorified in heaven, what God had shown him. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he writes about the things that are. And he writes of seven literal, actual churches. And these seven churches are important because you can almost take any church, healthy or unhealthy, and they fit into one of these seven churches. And you can take any life. Because remember, a local church is what its composite members are. And sometimes you can have a church that, for the most part, might be a very healthy church, but you might have some individuals that are more like, say, the Laodiceans. But he gives us those seven churches so that not only the church, but we as individuals can do some analysis. When you come to chapter 4, there's a door that is open in heaven, and it's called the rapture. And so the church is not mentioned again until we will see the term ecclesia mentioned here, church, here in chapter 22, later in the chapter. Where's the church been? They've been in heaven. God has caught the church up. Now, this is not drawn to scale. We have to draw it so that things can fit in. But between the rapture, when the church is caught up, and Paul says, we shall not all sleep, we shall Uh, Not all die, so to speak, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, Paul says to the church at Thessalonica that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will come out first. Then we who are alive shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's the rapture. Right after that, between the rapture and that line that says second coming, coming downward, that represents just seven years. It's called The Time of Jacob's Trouble by the prophet Jeremiah. We'll talk about its purpose in a moment. It's a very dark time in human history, the darkest time man has ever seen. But God will have a purpose in that. But then Jesus will come back. He'll rule and reign for a thousand years, and at the end of that thousand years, we'll enter into the eternal state. Now, let's think for a moment, why does God have a tribulation period? We've talked about, I gave you six reasons why he has a thousand-year reign. Well, there's six reasons, too, why he has a tribulation period. There may be more, but these are six that are plainly taught. Number one, to bring Israel to faith. For the most part, the Jews are in unbelief. And so what does God say he will do at the end of time? He'll gather the Jews from the nations of the world and he'll bring them back into the land. And then once they are in the land... He is not only going to physically have them gathered, He's going to spiritually change them. The Jews are going to believe that Jesus, Yeshua, is the Savior of the world. And so God will use this to bring Israel to faith. Look, for the most part today, the church is Gentile, as I mentioned. And most Gentiles today have become lukewarm, cold, and indifferent, and they very very rarely, if ever, share their faith. There will come a point when God will say, enough. I care about people. I don't want people to perish. And the church, those who are on fire and those who are lukewarm will be captured up into the air, and God will work through a new entity, the Jew. And so in Revelation 7, after the rapture, 144,000 Jews from 12 different tribes are miraculously converted. And what do they do? They preach the gospel to the whole world. So, one, it will bring Israel to faith. Two, it will show God's sovereignty over his creation. This is not our air, our water, our nature. This world has not been created by mother nature. It's done by Father God. And the sheer nonsense that people say that we're all going to be smothered and crushed and five feet underwater is not what the Bible reveals about the end. I'm not saying it couldn't happen if we went long enough in that direction, but it's not going to happen. God said it, it, as long as Genesis 9, there will be harvests and s- every single season until the end of the world. In the end events, God will judge the very thing that man worships, but he will show that he is a sovereign God. Third, one of the purposes for the tribulation is to expose the evil nature of Satan. His counterfeit master plan will be revealed. He has always wanted to be worshiped. And through his Antichrist, he will seek men to worship him. And you will see Satan, as we've studied, in all of his lying, conniving, God-hating, Christian-despising, blood-lusting, pride-hungering self. He is a wicked, wicked fallen angel, and he hates you, and he despises you, and he wants nothing but your worst, and he is the one who's energizing this world system that we live in. Fourth, we'll see something about the nature of man. The tribulation will expose man's total depravity, that the heart of man is desperately wicked. How will we see that? How have we seen it? Well, we saw that in spite of the stars falling from their sockets, global earthquakes, water being turned into blood, famine, one thing after another, people who know, according to Revelation 5, that this is the wrath of the Lamb from His throne, they still raise their puny fist in the face of God, and they blaspheme, and they do not repent. We will see, really, just how bad we are. That's one of the functions. In addition, a function is to show God's desire to save. He's not only going to revive Israel and display his sovereignty, expose Satan's evil nature and man's depravity, he's going to show that he is a God who doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is going to use the Jewish people like never before this Seal and trumpet and bold judgments is not because God hates man, but because God loves man. It will be his final wake up call. He'll be ringing people's bells across the planet. And six, the purpose will be to fulfill the Great Commission. The Great Commission will be fulfilled in this seven year period. We've never really seen it fulfilled in the history of the church. People say, well, we got to get out there and win the lost, so Jesus can come back. Nothing has to happen for Jesus to come and catch up his church. That doesn't mean we shouldn't get out there. We should live like we're the only church on the planet, like we're the only church who cares about reaching lost people. That's why you support over 300 missionaries every month through your tithes and offerings. But what we've been trying to do and God's people have attempted to do in 2,000 years will be done. During this time frame, Jesus said in Matthew twenty four fourteen, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. What end? His second coming. That's the context. And he's speaking of this seven-year period where the gospel through these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, through two witnesses, one we know to be for sure, Elijah, the Bible says, he's coming back. I suspect the other is Moses. And then an angel. God's never used an angel before to preach the gospel, but he will during this time. And the result is people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be one to Jesus. Now, John, by no means, is the first to prophesy about these events. But he's the last one to write about them. And he's unique in that he gives the most detail. The prophet Amos spoke of this seven-year period where the wrath of God will come on the earth. Isaiah spoke of the same time frame along with cosmic disturbances in the heavens above. The prophet Zechariah spoke of the salvation of Gentiles and the appearance of the Messiah on the Mount of Olives. Daniel gave us the exact length of time that it would be seven years. Now remember, the rapture in the second coming, it's very important. And I know some of you are brand-new Christians, and, you know, I had an 11-year-old in the office recently. I said, look, don't, don't worry about the things you don't get. You're not going to understand everything Pastor Carl teaches. You're just 11, but that doesn't mean you can't learn a lot. I know 11-year-olds who know more than 70-year-olds. I'm not joking, because they have a heart and a hunger for the things of God, but I said, you be open and let God speak to your heart, but don't worry about the things you don't understand. And I, told, I tell them, I have to teach the newest of Christians, and I have to teach the oldest of Christians, immature and very mature, and everything in between. So I have to provide every week when I feed the sheep, people for every different level. But remember, the rapture and the second coming are two distinct events. In the rapture, Christ comes in the air. We will meet the Lord in the air, But at the second coming, Zechariah chapter 14, he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. He comes to the earth. In the rapture, he comes for his people. At the second coming, when Jesus comes back with scores, millions of angels, they're going to come for the lost. His people in the rapture will be removed from earth into heaven, but the lost at the second coming, they will be removed from the planet, every last one of them, and temporarily put in Hades, awaiting the final great white throne judgment. In the rapture, Jesus comes before the hour of trial. We're in the second coming. He comes at the end of the tribulation, after the hour of trial. There are no signs, never have been for the rapture. It's imminent. Many signs for his second coming. In the rapture, we're resurrected. In the twinkling of an eye, our bodies are changed. We get mortal Bodies taking on immortality, this perishable must put on the imperishable. But at the second coming, Old Testament saints are raised. They won't be raised with the church. They're raised, Daniel 12 teaches, at the end of the tribulation. That's when Abraham and Moses and all these guys are going to come out of the grave in their resurrected bodies. Um, so believers at the rapture will receive glorified bodies, believers who are alive at the second coming, they will go into the millennium in their natural bodies. Now, when they go into the millennium, remember the millennium is 1,000 years long. Once a person is saved, the Bible teaches they are saved forever. We in our resurrected bodies will be like the angels and that we will not procreate and we won't be married. Some ladies say, oh, thank God, my marriage will be over. <laughs> That's not to say that you won't have a special relationship with your wife. Of course, the one guy said to me, I'm not sure which one. I've been married five times. I said, oh, you know, you can see why God had to sort this thing out a little bit. But those who enter into the millennial reign in their natural bodies will have children over the course of a 1,000 years, And Satan will have been locked up for the full thousand years, and at the end of the thousand years, he hasn't tempted anyone. Jesus is ruling perfect conditions, yet not all will respond, and he will muster up a rebellion that will be put down before they can fire their first bullet. We've studied it in detail. And then he'll be cast into the lake of fire. Then the lost of all time are brought before the great white throne. Judgment, that brought us to chapter 21 where we studied heaven and what it was like. Chapter 22, one through five, the inside tour. And when you, if you didn't believe the Bible was the word of God, you might say, man, this is fiction. This is too good to be true. God says these words. Are faithful and true. John, this is no dream. You're not in some spiritual fog. Everything that you have seen and heard and you have recorded is really real. God is faithful and true. And because God, the Lord, the God of the spirits of his prophets, sent his angel to tell you this, you can bank on it. Now, that's the first response. The fact that Jesus is coming we are to wait. We are to anticipate. But more than anticipation, God wants us to make some application. So when you think about Christ coming back, we are also to work. We are to work. Look now at verse 7. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, quickly or soon or suddenly, Uh, again, speaks of the time of time and that when it begins, it will happen very fast. And we've witnessed that with the 21 judgments. And we witness that with other events that are in the future. For instance, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. Now, biologically, the twinkling of an eye twinkling of an eye refers to the amount of time it takes for light to hit the eyeball and bounce off. I don't know how they come up with it, but scientists say it's one millionth of a second. That's how fast it's going to happen. I don't know how many true Christians there are in the world, but let's say for the sake of argument, there's 500 million born-again Christians alive. I mean, think if the rapture happened today. And Christians all across this campus were suddenly missing. Some of us who don't know Christ would be in havoc. But think about the planet. 500 million people say gone, maybe more, all across the world. The world will be in utter turmoil. And it's going to happen so fast in the twinkling of an eye That's the rapture. Think about the speed of the second coming. Jesus said it this way in the Olivet Discourse. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Light travels, you know, 186,000 miles per second. The point is, is that once this thing starts, it's going to be very, very fast. And not just Unbelievers need to heed this warning so that they are saved, but he's dr- addressing here primarily Christians who need to be obeying this truth. Look at verse 7 again. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, if you've been with us in our study of the Revelation, we've learned there are seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Here's a chart. The, the book opened that those who read and heed and obey the book of Revelation, those who read it, who hear it and obey it, they're blessed. There's a blessing that is given for the believer who wants to study the book of Revelation. Later on, he'll give a beatitude for those who die in the Lord He's speaking about that seven-year period where how are most of God's people who are converted during the tribulation, and remember, it's people who've never heard the gospel before, the typical way they are dead is by execution, i.e., their heads are cut off. Mm. So in that sense, it's a blessing if you die in the Lord at that point, especially what's coming after Revelation 14. Revelation 16, blessed are those who are watching, Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the church is raptured, we'll be in heaven, and our lives will be evaluated. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. It's not to see if you get into heaven. It's a judgment for Christians to see how you will spend eternity based on your faithfulness now. And then we will sit down with the Lord at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It will be magnificent. Then Revelation 20, verse 6, those who are a part of the first resurrection. We studied the whole first resurrection program. And then here we are, Revelation 22, 7, those who heed. Look at the verse again. Blessed is he who heeds. The word of the prophecy of this book. You're blessed if you heed. So if you're blessed by heeding, what does it mean to heed? Well, it's a Greek word that means to observe. To keep. In fact, uh, the same word was used in Revelation 14 12 of believers. Here is the perseverance of the saints. And I think most of you know that if you are saved, you're a saint. You're looking at St. Brogi this morning. Now, no church gave me that designation. Sainthood, though, is spoken of every believer. How righteous do you have to be to go to heaven? As righteous as God. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. It's gifted by grace through faith. You are credited and called a saint of God. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. He's saying, listen, when God declares you a saint, a holy one, you'll want to keep his commandments. Now, some almost add the words without failure, but he does not do that. We're going to see one of his failures in a moment. We all stumble in many ways. But the Bible is very clear. We've seen it repeatedly that if we know Jesus, there's a new direction in our life. There's a new way of life. Why? Because when God credits you with righteousness, for the first time ever, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. You know what he does? He makes you holy. And he's your helper. He wants to help you. And so if our life is not changed it means the Spirit is not residing in us. It means we've never believed on Christ where we're deemed saints. Again, the difference between a true believer and a false believer is that a true believer has a new direction. We're not talking about perfection, but direction. There's a new direction in life. And understand, obedience is not a condition of salvation. It is the evidence of salvation. But not only is it the evidence of salvation, as our verse this morning in verse 6 underscores, it is also the pathway to blessing. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, if you are obeying what God is revealing in this book, he's going to bless you. He didn't give you this book so you can create some big chart to make you smarter, He gave us this book that we might surrender more fully to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. John said it this way in his first letter, first John three, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, when we live with the expectation that Jesus could come this... I mean, if you knew he was coming this afternoon at 3, what would you do? i got this brother who's lost. I want to go talk to him. And i got this person that I owe money to, and I want to go fix that. And you might want to get some things right. Well, we are to live like he can come at any moment. And when we live with that expectation, we will live a pure life. As Jesus is pure. And so that's what the early church did. And it was a major motivation for them that I think we've lost. And so when Paul concludes his whole discourse on being changed in the twinkling of an eye, he says, therefore, here's the application. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's not in vain for you to heed the words of the prophecy of this book. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. A few days ago, had a brother right here, been a member since I came, went home to be with Jesus. His body was there, but the person inside the body, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says we have as our ambition, whether at home, alive in this body, or absent, to be pleasing to him, to him, to Jesus. Peter said it this way when he spoke of the fact that Jesus' return is imminent. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort, what kind, what manner of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He has already said in the book that we are aliens and strangers. That our real citizenship, Paul said, is not as Americans, but it's in heaven. Now, while I don't believe that we should be weird for weird's sake, because I know some believers associate weirdness with holiness, and when they're weird, unnecessarily, they repel people and they miss opportunity to win people to Jesus. But we are to be different, we are to be holy. And so further spelling out our need, Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, Christ's return, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Now, you're not going to take much when you leave this world. In fact, everything you own, it's all going to be left behind. But there's one thing you will take with you, and it will be your righteous character. Righteousness will permeate the coming kingdom. And so we are to be diligent that we might be blessed to heed the words of the prophecy of this book. This truth should not only cause anticipation, it should cause application. We should be doing something with it. But remember, at the end of time, the church will be lukewarm. That's the American church. I'm 10 minutes with someone and they talk to me about nothing, about football, and the time before about football, and the time before about football, I know what their priorities are, football. Nothing wrong with football, don't write me a letter. But what drives you? What do you long for? Some of you here today are applying what God said. Listen to these words. Hebrews 10, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You know, if you're not here, you can't do that. He says, as long as it's called today, we're to encourage one another. In Hebrews 3.13, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together. I talked to a brother yesterday on the phone, and he has cancer, and he was just thanking me so much that on weeks that he is weak, that he can live stream. But there are some live streaming in their homes this morning because they didn't feel like getting up. That's the lukewarmness of this age. You need to be with God's people. We're to assemble ourselves together, not forsake that as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, get this, all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? Jesus' day, his return. Look, when you see Israel in the land, when you see widespread sexual immorality like the days of Noah, when you see widespread sexual perversion like homosexuality and transgenderism and all that other junk... When you see growing apostasy where people are abandoning the Bible more and more and more, your eyes ought to be wide open. The day is drawing near. And as that day draws nearer, things won't get easier. They'll get tougher. Sin will grow. And all the more you need to be with God's people. If you have a casual relationship to the body of Christ, then you're in disobedience. Disobedience. We are to wait. We are to anticipate. We are to work. Jesus said, occupy until I come finally quickly. We are to worship. Let me bring this in for a landing. We are to worship. Again, we read in verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now, that's bizarre that the great apostle John would fall down at the feet of an angel in worship, which is one of the great reasons to believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture. Because if man wrote this book all by himself, he would leave out all of his faults. And John wrote down a fault for people to read for the last 2,000 years. But when God paints a picture of a man, he paints it blemishes and all because he inspires Realism. Now, we saw back in chapter 19 this same problem. So let me just refresh your memory. Now, John has already written his first epistle, and how does he end First John 5? He says, little children, guard yourself from idols. He despised idolatry, and to worship anyone or anything other than God is idolatry. So how do we deal with this? Well, it's one of two possibilities. This was such an emotional event and his thoughts are so filled with the Lord Jesus, maybe he just kind of lost his head and his emotions overtook sound thinking. And so the Bible tells us that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. But I think a more likely explanation is that he may have actually thought at this moment that he was worshiping the Lord Jesus. I mean, follow the flow of thought here. The chapter opens in verse 1 where John is shown the throne of God by an angel. And we identify that he in verse 1 to be God's holy angel. And then all of a sudden, he again, he's repeated in verse 6, and then all of a sudden, without notice, verse 7, it's like the person to whom he is speaking with changes. I mean, look at the words in verse 7, and behold, I am coming quickly. Whose words are those? Those are Jesus' words. We already saw them in Revelation 2.16 when he spoke to the church at Pergamum. We saw it in Revelation 3 when he spoke to the church at Philadelphia. And behold, I am coming quickly. So whose words are these? Well, indisputably, these are the words of Jesus. No one doubts that. But the point of Rob is who's speaking these words? Maybe the angel is speaking them on the Lord's behalf, just like very often a prophet is speaking and then all of a sudden he says, and so the mouth of the Lord has said. Remember how the book opened, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his bondservants the things which must take place. And he sent and communicated it, how? By his angel to his bondservant, John. So Jesus gives it to his angel, and the angel gives it to John. So if indeed John thinks that this one speaking is Jesus, then you could see why he fell down. Now, we won't know until we get to heaven, but we know this, it's inappropriate to worship anyone other than the living God. And so in verse 9, the rebuke comes, but he said to me, do not do that, I am a fellow servant of yours. And of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. And worshiping God has been a major theme all the way through the Revelation. In chapter 4, we saw people worshiping God in Revelation 4. In Revelation 5, we saw them again worshiping the Lord God, Jesus, In chapter 7, we saw this great multitude of people who lose their lives during the tribulation. And who are they worshiping again? Jesus. In chapter 15 and 19, who are they worshiping again? The Lord Jesus. Look, when Jesus is worshiped even in his resurrected body before the ascension by two women in the garden, he doesn't tear his robes like Peter or Paul did on two separate occasions. Don't worship me. I'm just a man. He receives the worship. And all of heaven is worshiping Jesus. Look, the Mormons and the JWs who say Jesus is just a man, they don't believe in the same Jesus that this Bible presents. Now, you may not believe the Bible, and that's another issue, and I'm happy to show you that this is the only book that God ever wrote. He didn't write the Vedas and the Book of Mormon or the Quran. The only book God wrote was the Holy Bible, And the Bible presents Jesus as worthy of worship. Listen, you shall worship the Lord thy God in him only. To worship Jesus in him not to be God is utter blasphemy. But here God's angel rebukes John for whatever reason. I don't think it's willful idolatry. I just think he's lost his head for whatever reason or he didn't understand what was happening and he's rebuked. Now, where to wait for God's Son from heaven. But we don't sit on our hands. We are to work. And some of you, if the truth were known, you show up and that's it. You don't have a ministry, either when the church is gathered or when it's scattered. You're to occupy until he comes. And we are to worship. he He is our creator. He is our redeemer. He is our savior. He is our God. A tourist was exploring there, that great section in northern Italy. Some of you have been there, Lake Como. He came to a beautiful castle, the Villa Escaniti. And as he looked at that castle, he was brave enough to open the gate. And he walked in, and it was just breathtaking. It's just meticulously manicured, the entire estate. And he saw a gardener there, and he says, would it be okay if I came in and just looked around? He said, of course, come on in. You're more than welcome. I'm glad to have a guest. The man began to walk around the grounds and he said, is the owner here today? He said, oh, no, no, he's away. The tourist said, well, does he come here often? When was the last time you saw him? He said, well, I saw him about 12 years ago. Rather surprised that tourist asked, 12 years? You mean this owner, has not been here in 12 years. He said, that, that's, that's right. Well, who tells you what to do? Well, he has an administrator in Milan, and he gives me weekly instructions, and I take my orders from him. And there he was, clipping, pruning, trimming. And he thought, this is incredible. Look at this place. Look at this man's commitment And his boss never, ever shows up. He said, everything is so beautiful. It looks like you're expecting him tomorrow. He said, I am. In fact, he may come today, and I'm ready for him. Friend, every born-again, blood-bought child of God, you ought to be living like Jesus may come today. It's not something far off out in the future. By death or rapture, you're going to meet him one of these days. Revelation seven says, every eye will see him. Whether you see him in the rapture or whether people see him in the second coming, every eye will see him. Zechariah said, those who crucified him will look on him. They will see him. Every crusader that hates Jesus, every politician that despises our values, every pornographer will see him, every pimp, every baby-killing abortionist, every drug dealer, every self-righteous person, whether redeemed or unredeemed, everyone will see him. So are you ready? If you do not know that if you took your last breath in that seat today... That heaven is your home, you're not ready. But you can be, because salvation is a gift, and if you will humbly receive it, He will forgive you and give you a new life. But many of you have crossed that line, but you've gotten lackadaisical, you've gotten just kind of apathetic. And if Jesus came back today, you wouldn't be like that gardener. You'd shrink back in shame. Now, our Father, thank you for your word, for its incredible inspiration that we are reading this morning, your very breath put into print. May we be those who heed this great prophetic book. Help someone today, Father, who's never received Jesus. Help them to see that they are unworthy of the kingdom of God. Every one of us is. And until they admit that unworthiness, they'll never see a need for a Savior. Help them to call upon the one who died in their place, who bore all of their punishment who proved his his ability when he was raised from the dead. Help someone today, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, many of us have done that. We've made a confession of faith. We've even joined a Bible-believing church. This one or people who are live streaming in other parts of the world, another church. But the passion has dwindled. You want to change that. May you have absolute sway over us. May we confess our lukewarmness and our indifference and any sin that may be blocking our relationship with you, our fellowship with you, that you might cleanse us and use us once again. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his holy honor. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And maybe you're here, maybe in recent weeks, maybe this week, you asked Jesus to be your personal Savior. God says, make it public. Jesus said, if it's real on the inside, you'll be willing to confess it on the outside. If you've never done that, walking this aisle won't save you. But if you know Jesus, you won't be ashamed of him. And it should express itself, that confession, in New Testament baptism. The Bible says, believe and then be baptized. We're to be baptized after we are saved. Some of us we have no intention of joining a church anyway, or not this one, not anyone. We'd rather drift. And just have no formal commitment. And if you really know Christ, you will weep when you see him. That's going to lead us. If you have a decision to make, step out now and meet me here in the front.